I'm Connor Reed, with words to that effect. Just near the forecourts in the centre of Dublin, there's a fairly unassuming church. It's beside the Lewis tram line and on a busy main road, hemmed in between two office blocks. As you walk up Church Street from the River Liffey, it's easy to miss. This is St. Michael's Church, and I'm just outside now. I've come for a visit to see its famous crypt. It's a popular tourist attraction and has been for a very long time. Despite being from Dublin, I've never actually been here before, so I'm excited. There's been a church here for nearly a thousand years. Viking Chapel dates from 1095, and the building has been used as a church ever since. It's been restored and much of it rebuilt over the centuries, but the crypt below has remained untouched, slowly mummifying the bodies which reside there. Tour guide Peter brought me down to have a look. I've just walked down a steep set of stairs, through a gate and into a small, dimly lit corridor. There are vaults on either side. Each of the vaults belongs to a different family. In in some cases, people continue to be buried here. But it's the vault down here on the left that is of the most interest. There are a number of different disintegrating coffins, but there are four of them which have broken open. And there are four incredibly well-preserved bodies here. Seemingly, no one is actually sure what it is exactly about the crypt that makes it so suited to preserving these mummified remains, but it seems to be a combination of sort of optimal constant temperature. It's actually quite not warm down here, but it's warmer than it is outside. The limestone in the walls seems to be a contributing factor as well, and then there's uh, methane gas as well. Whatever it is, the bodies here are perfectly preserved. There's a thick layer of dust over them, but you can see their skin, their hair, their fingernails. Three of them are around 400 years old. Um, One of them is a nun, and she has these really delicate hands. The fingernails are completely undamaged. You can see them as you look into the coffin. There's another man who is missing both of his feet and one hand, The feet were removed, it seems, simply to fit him in the coffin. He was extremely tall. Uh, The missing hand is more difficult to account for. And then at the back, there's an 800-year-old man named the Crusader, due to the way his body was placed in in the casket, which was typical of Crusaders in this period, apparently. How he got here seems to be a mystery as well. St. Michael's has played a role in several important cultural events in Dublin's history. The organ in the church upstairs was built in the early 18th century, and it's believed that George Friedrich Handel practised on this organ before the first ever performance of his famous Messiah Oratorio, premiered just around the corner on Fishamble Street. Even if you don't know Handel's Messiah... You know Handel's Messiah. Another visitor was the Irish author Bram Stoker. And while there are a lot of influences on his creation of Dracula, you can certainly see the parallels between the famous vampire and the coffins here containing dead bodies so well preserved they seem almost alive. Less well known, perhaps, was a visit in July 1892 by Montague Rhodes James, Dean of King's College Cambridge and a brilliant medievalist scholar. 
M.R. James would go on to have an extremely distinguished academic career and in time would become a world-renowned authority on medieval manuscripts, provost of King's College and then vice-chancellor of Cambridge University. But his visit to Dublin in 1892 to what he described as the nightmare figures in the crypt came at the very beginning of an occasional extracurricular pursuit of James's, writing ghost stories. For James, these stories were an enjoyable diversion from his academic life, not meant to be taken seriously as great literature. He wrote in an early preface, The stories themselves do not make any exalted claim. If any of them succeed in causing their reader to feel pleasantly uncomfortable when walking along a solitary road at nightfall, or sitting over a dying fire in the small hours, my purpose in writing them will have been attained. But M.R. James is one of the greatest writers of ghost stories in English. His collected ghost stories has remained in print since its first publication, and his tales are adapted for stage and screen generation after generation. They are in many ways what we think of when we think of the Victorian ghost story. Dusty manuscripts, creaking old houses, libraries or churches, menacing ghostly apparitions. A century later, the stories are unnerving and frightening, especially if read late at night by candlelight as they very much should be. In fact, this is how the stories first began. James, the eminent King's College academic, would gather together a very select group of colleagues and students in his rooms on Christmas Eve, and with the fire lit and the room darkened, he would read his latest ghost story. It was only later that he began to publish the stories in slim volumes. It would certainly have come as a surprise to him to learn that, well over a century later, it would be these ghost stories that have become his lasting legacy. Stories like Casting the Runes, O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, or Lost Hearts are classics, and they still provoke the intended reaction of terror and unease. In the diary of Mr. Pointer, a man dozes in an armchair. When he wakes up, his hand is draped down over the edge of the chair, and he lazily pets his brown spaniel. As he pets the dog, however, he realises that the hair is not that of his dog, but of a hairy, human-shaped figure crouched on all fours by his chair a figure which slowly rises up to within a few inches of the man's face. The stories are so effective because they take in familiar, everyday scenes and people. James wasn't interested in setting his stories in distant times and places. A ghost story of which the scene is laid in the 12th or 13th century may succeed in being romantic or poetical. It will never put the reader into the position of saying to himself, if I'm not very careful, something of this kind may happen to me. M.R. James's ghosts are always malevolent intrusions into everyday life. In so many ways, James's work is a revealing reflection of his life. Like the setting of his ghost stories, James lived much of his life in the 20th century, but very much looked back to Victorian times. He was a product and central part of an elite English education system. He attended Eton and then King's College Cambridge, where he became a fellow, then dean, then provost. He rose to the position of vice-chancellor of the entire university, before returning to Eton again in semi-retirement to take up the position of provost. He spent his entire life in the confines of elite august institutions. He was, perhaps unsurprisingly, very conservative, extremely hostile to change, and he clashed with modernist and modernising figures throughout his life, from the evolutionary biologist Thomas Henry Huxley to the economist John Maynard Keynes. He was fervently opposed to the idea of women being awarded degrees in Cambridge and worked determinedly to obstruct any plans to change this or any other proposed modernisations within Cambridge. 
James never married and there's no record of his having a romantic relationship of any sort. There is, of course, speculation of an unacknowledged or well-hidden homosexuality. He spent his life almost entirely in male company. But there's no real evidence of any interest in sex on James's part. Except, of course, what can be read from his fiction. Throughout the ghost stories, there's clearly a horror of women generally, and of human contact of any sort. There's so little physical contact in James's ghost stories, except when the characters are attacked or overwhelmed by horrific ghostly creatures. There are other repeated motifs in his stories too. There's the frequent inclusion of old manuscripts of forbidden knowledge. Bad things happen to those who try to disturb and control ancient traditions. Things should stay the same. This was a time when spiritualism, the hugely popular belief in communication with the dead, was making its way into every aspect of Victorian and Edwardian culture. But James had no interest in contemporary explorations of the spirit world. His were literary ghosts. Nevertheless, they are ghost stories written at a time of intense and widespread interest in the ghost. In the story Lost Hearts, for example, the character Mr. Abney references the psychic portion of dead people linking the popular conception of ghosts with contemporary spiritualist and psychical research. And it's this story, Lost Hearts, that brings us back to a crypt in the basement of St. Michael's Church in Dublin. The crypt is in fact referenced in the story, and it was the inspiration for what was one of James's first ever ghost stories, a classic in the genre. And so, to continue the long-standing tradition of the Christmas ghost story, Words to that effect has teamed up with the disturbingly good podcast down below the reservoir to bring you our own version of Lost Hearts. To be listened, if at all possible, late at night, in front of the fire, with the lights dimmed. It was in September of the year 1811 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Atterbury Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise, jumped out as soon as it had stopped and looked about him with the keenest curiosity. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house built in the reign of Anne, a stone-pillared porch added in classical style. The windows were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with a round window, crowned the front. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall stretched a flat park, studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower buried in trees, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. Altogether, a pleasant impression, though tinged with the melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn, the post-chase had brought him from Warwickshire, where, some six months before, he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr Abney, he had come to live at Asserby. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew Mr Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose household the advent of a small boy would import a new and incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr Abney's pursuits or temper, save that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Asserby. 
His library contained books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense. He was looked upon, in fine, as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbours that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more that he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Asserby Hall. And yet, Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you? Uh, That is, you're not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper. No, thank you, sir. I am pretty well. That's a good lad, a good lad. And and how old are you, my boy? Odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir. And when is your birthday, my dear boy? 11th of September, eh? That's well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I like like to get these things down in my book. Um, Sure sure it's 12, certain? Yes, quite quite sure, sir. Well, well, take him to Mrs Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir. And so Stephen was conducted to the lower regions of Asserby Hall. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had as yet met at Asserby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighbourhood some fifty-five years before, and her residence at the hall was of twenty years standing. If anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them. She was by no means disinclined to communicate this information. There were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the laurel walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hands? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. Is... is Mr Abney a good man? And will he go to heaven? Good. Bless the child. Master's as kind a soul as ever I see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boys he took in out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back? And the little girl, two years after I first come here? No. Do tell me all about them, Mrs Bunch. Now, this minute. Well... The little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day and give orders to Mrs Ellis, as was the housekeeper then, that she should be took every care with. And the poor child had no one belonging to her. She told me so her own self. And here she lived with us a matter of three weeks it might be. And then, whether she were something of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out for bed before any of us had opened an eye, and neither track nor trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about, and it all the ponds dragged. But it's my belief she was had away by them gypsies, for there was singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went, and Parks, he declare as he heard them calling in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, dear... An odd child she was, so silent in her ways and all. But I was wonderful taken up with her. And what about the little boy? Oh, that poor boy. 
Jeveny, he called himself. And he come a tweaking his urgy gurgy around and all about the drive one winter day and mastered him in that minute and asked all about where he came from and how old he was and how he made his way and where was his relatives and all his kind as his heart could wish. But it went the same way with him. He was off one fine morning just the same as a girl. Why he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after for he never took his hurdy-gurdy and there it lays on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night, Stephen had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall, its head towards the window. Stephen found himself looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. In St. Michael's Church in Dublin, there are vaults which possess the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries— here was such a figure, inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden colour, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As Stephen looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. <laughs> The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke. He was indeed standing on the cold, boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage uncommon amongst boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams was really there. It was not. Stephen went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. And do take care, young Stephen. The spring equinox approaches, a time always considered by the ancients to be critical for the young. You would do well to take care of yourself. Be sure to shut your bedroom window at night. You'll find Sensorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Yes, sir. Two incidents occurred about this time that made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, how do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? Look here, sir. What trouble do you give to poor servants that have to darn and mend after you? There was indeed a most destructive and wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. But Mrs Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes, she came down. Well, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can have come there. 
too high up for any cat or dog to have made him. Much less a rat. For all the world, like, fingernails. I wouldn't say anything to Master not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear. Just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Mrs Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, that's a good child. Always say your prayers and then no one can hurt you. No one can hurt you. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr Parks, the butler, who, as a rule, kept himself to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs Bunch. I don't know what it may be. Very like it's the rats or the wind got into the cellars. But I'm not so young as I was and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats as a whole. I'm not denying that, Mrs Bunch, and to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never made no confidence in that before, but tonight, if I demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were saying. Oh, there, Mr Parks. I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar indeed. Well, Mrs Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Well, you'll be frightened Master Stephen out of his wits. What, Master Stephen? Oh, <laughs> Master Stephen knows uh, well enough when I'm, when I'm playing a joke with you, Mrs Bunch. <laughs> in fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr Parks had in the first instance intended a joke but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. The day of March 24th was one of curious experiences for Stephen, a windy, noisy day which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world. After luncheon, Mr Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you'd better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table filled with red wine and some written sheets of paper lay nearby. Mr Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen and there was a still night and a full moon. Stephen stood at the open window of his bedroom looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries as of lost and despairing wanderers sounded from across the mere. 
They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window, he caught sight of two figures standing on the gravelled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and a girl. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half-smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape, with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Asserby all that evening. In another moment this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked. The key was on the outside of the door as usual. Mr. Abney? Mr. Abney? His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. Mr. Abney! Had he too seen the mysterious children? The door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. Mr. Abney? On the table, in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen when he was of age to understand them. It was a belief very strongly held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I place utmost confidence, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a remarkable enlightenment may be attained. That, for example, by absorbing the personalities of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, to assume any form he pleased, by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of three human beings below the age of twelve years. To the testing of the truth of this, I have devoted the greater part of the last twenty years, selecting as the corpora vilia of my experiment such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24th, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23rd, 1805. The final victim, to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, must be my cousin Stephen Elliot. His day must be this March 24th, 1812. 
The best means of affecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with a red wine, preferably port. The remains it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts, but the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me. Not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating, to a great extent, the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wildcat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But study of the papers led Stephen Elliot to a very different conclusion. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. It's the last episode of Season 1 and a good Christmas special. I hope you'll agree. Down Below the Reservoir is a horror podcast of original works by Graham Tugwell, and it will also be returning for its second season in the new year. If you haven't heard the show before, I highly recommend you go check it out. It's so good. It's on iTunes and all the usual podcast places and at downbelowthereservoir.com. Lost Hearts was performed by Graham Tugwell, Deirdre Sullivan, James Ward, and myself, with production by Graham Tugwell. Music in the Words to That Effect half of the episode was by Philip Coleman, and you can get links to his music on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com, and there was even a track by me. I'm trying something new. So, if you've been listening to Words to That Effect since it began last June, thank you so much. I have loved making it. And the support and encouragement I've got from so many people has been amazing. Special thanks to my wife Sarah for patiently listening to drafts of every episode. I'm going to take a short break and get Season 2 planned out and ready to go, starting up in early February. Keep an eye on the website, wttepodcast.com, for the latest updates. I also have lots of photos from St. Michael's Church, if you want to have a look. Um, there'll be lots of new articles there as well and some other good stuff over the break so have a look you can follow the show as well on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at C-E-D-R-E-I-D C-E-D-R-E-I-D get in touch let me know what you'd like to hear about in the new season so that's it have a great Christmas and I'll see you very soon This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.